The statements and views expressed on the Voices and Vulnerability podcast are those of the speakers alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of Emory University School of Law or its affiliates. Welcome to Voices and Vulnerability, the podcast where we interview the people shaping vulnerability theory in the legal world and beyond. We're here to learn about vulnerability theory and how it can transform and is already shaping public policy and discourse around the world. My name is Mangala Kanesan. Today, I'm grateful to have Dr. Asen Nayak here on the show as my guest. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Dr. Nayak is a visiting scholar here at the Vulnerability and the Human Condition Initiative. She is an affiliated researcher at the University of Amsterdam and is a research associate in Critical Studies and Higher Education Transformation at Mandela University, South Africa. Dr. Nayak holds a PhD from UCLA and is interested in the intersection of sexuality and politics, African politics, spirituality and ethics, government outsourcing, and vulnerability theory. So really quickly, in about 30 seconds, how would you describe a vulnerability theory? To me, uh, vulnerability theory is a theory that seeks to put in conversation or align public policy to the full spectrum of human experience or condition. That was very concise. (laughs) Thank you. What questions does your research attempt to answer? Uh, First, as you uh, mentioned in the intro, I I wear several hats. Um, I am mostly known for my work on um, gender sexuality in Africa. But in terms of my uh, dissertation work, I focus on government outsourcing or broadly defined as a public procurement. So what is public procurement? It is the process through which a government or government entities will purchase goods, services, and works from private suppliers. And these suppliers can be for-profit organizations or Mm non-for-profit. So at the intersection of that interaction is uh, what, establishes um, public-private partnerships. And my questions in terms of uh, vulnerability um, uh, align with my interest on gender and on sexuality. So I am um, concerned about the future of gender equality, and I'm using that term very loosely, uh, when government is no longer the sole provider of public services. So in the past, Uh, The model that served very well feminist scholarship and other people who are concerned about social justice was a model where the state has always really been the center of attention. And uh, vulnerability, for example, uh, theory, relies on this idea of a responsive state. So given our condition, what sort of institution do we imagine? Well, it turns out that that state is perhaps not as homogenous as we used to assume. And today, a lot of what states do, not just in in this country, but around the world, is actually done by private contractors. Uh, I can uh, give you a simple example. We're talking about immigration and refugees and, and those sort of things. Well, guess what? Sometimes churches actually are the big contractors because they do the resettlement of people who come to the United States 
seeking asylum and, and, and uh, fleeing um, hard conditions. Another example might be, well, there could be a war. Well, uh, you need to go fight a war and, um, well, you may have military contractors and that is a whole spectrum of, of services that they offer. So I'm just giving those two examples because sometimes when we talk about government outsourcing or public procurement, people don't really understand what is it that uh, we are all talking about. So I'm concerned about what happens to social justice broadly defined when the nature of the state is changing. And the issue is not just one of supplying a good services or work. The issue is one where um, contractors now influence policy. Let me give you another by way of um, examples. When uh, President Obama was, was in office, he signed an executive order forbidding uh, discrimination in federal contracts. Well, some people and some groups said, well, we are objecting to that. We want federal contract, but we want to say that our faith may not allow us to work with certain types of families. So you see a lot of tensions there. So it's not just about, hey, I have this to do. Who can help me do that? Bid for contract and provide a service. It's not just as simple as that. A lot of influence go in. A lot of uh, the quality of services themselves, are they actually what we expect what sort of ideologies and values emerge out of, out of that in, in interactions. And in terms of gender, to what extent concerns of women or LGBT communities are being either ignored or strengthened or, or transformed, basically. So I am at that intersection. To what extent then the larger question here is what is the future of democracy uh, when governance is done by contract? Who do we hold accountable when, on the one hand, yes, the government may have provided the finance for a project, but in terms of implementation, uh, maybe the government was not actually responsible for that part. So those are the broad questions, uh, more or less, uh, that I am uh, interested in. And um, I'm situated uh, internationally, so I, I, do, I have done work mostly um, focusing on the continent of Africa. And when we start raising these questions in the context of developing or middle-income countries, um, uh, what is development? Some of the, um, the schemes, procurement schemes that are offered um, working to enhance the quality of life of women. If, for example, um, and again, I'm going to give you another example. In the 1990s, most African states were told um, not to invest in uh, health or in in education, we call those a structural adjustment. And then a few years after, you say, well, the government is so weak, you cannot provide crucial services, but the private sector can offer them. So you, you come back with another model and say, hey, uh, let us do this public-private partnerships, except that, hey, there are some women who are pregnant in some village, and the hospital used to be affordable. But now that the public-private partnership is, is kind of the model, well, services may not be the same because now there might be a fee, uh, the contract has been signed, and of course, it's not a straightforward type of model. So I'm, I'm sort of interested in these dynamics. To what extent the state is being weakened or is it being weakened at all? I'm interested in who is benefiting. Looking at the supply side of it, what type of contractors is actually getting contracts 
and 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 because that is the biggest market, you know, yeah, outside of the conventional market. What sort of what type of social groups are getting these contracts? Are women entrepreneurs represented? What is the size of those? So those are the kind of the questions that one can ask from the supply side of 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 uh, uh, government procurement. Now on the demand side, the consumer side, what is the quality of services? Uh, are, are people, are communities part of the process of framing even the demand itself? I have seen situations where a government signs a contract for development and the developer comes just to realize, oh, that is a cemetery. And I, I saw this in South Sudan. And of course, people are up in arms because they were never consulted to begin with. So a contractor arrived and went to talk to a central government and you said, hey, we'll give you this piece of land. And you see a lot of these things, people are displaced, land is being, people are being dispossessed. So those are the sort of questions that really um, fascinates me in terms of this time of not just globalization, but also of the idea that perhaps the market is more efficient than the government and that the market will supply whatever that the government cannot. How would you define development? I would say that a developed state or developed country, a developed nation, is a nation that is capable of nurturing and benefiting from its resources. And the resources can be human resources, they can be natural resources, they can be environmental resources, but whatever is it that contributes to uh, the happiness of people. A lot of it has to do with economics, clearly. Um, But a lot of it also has to do with the quality of life. What sort of people um, we are calling citizens, what sort of citizens um, are we uh, preparing to, to influence the world, to be part of the world? So uh, broadly defined, you know, I'm, I'm, pol- I'm a political scientist and, and somebody will say, well, institutions also matter, all of that together. But I, I think that what I like about this uh, vulnerability theory is that it starts with, with the human and then move to institutions, not not with institutions in, in, in some sort of ideological, abstract sense. Um, and, and, and being grounded in that human experience is really what should define development. So there are some mechanisms that measure how developed a country is. What are your thoughts on those? Well, um, you know, the conventional is, you know, you look at how, how much money you, you have. You know, it's the same thing. You know, how much money you have in a bank and your domestic uh, uh, production, uh, your GDP, how much, how many people are educated, you know, how many degrees you confer, your ability to innovate, you know, patent and invention, um, all of that, your, your, your culture, you know. I don't think one measure can tell the whole story. And now people measure things such as happiness. And it is a problem, a growing problem in developed um, countries, you know, where we see that money doesn't always make people happy. You know, so I think all of it, we, we have to take into consideration quality of life, quality of the environment, quality of our uh, institutions and how responsive and transparent 
they are. Uh, I don't necessarily subscribe to one particular measure. I think all of them capture one aspect, but, but not all of it. Uh, poverty is the same thing. You hear this country is a poor country. Well, that may be true on one aspect, but uh, that country might be also wealthy in, in, some, in some, some other ways. The issue there is how are resources being extracted and being managed? What sort of um, concessional contracts are being entered into? My, my book, um, Public Procurement and, and Governance in Africa, highlights some of these uh, issues where you have countries such as Zambia with, you know, mines and you have other countries with uh, oil and minerals. The issue is not that they have them. The issue is the kind of concessions that they enter into. So you, you have these companies, they go, well, we're not going to pay taxes for the next 30 years. And what are we going to do? Maybe we'll build a road here and there, but you actually never see the road, right? So those sort of issues there are not just about the countries not developed. These public-private partnerships, what sort of deals are being made? And the area has been so obscure for a long time that it's just coming back now. Um, and we see it because now the, the UN has adopted this, this sort of public-private partnership as, as a model. But um, now is also the time for us to start paying attention to, to these deals, you know, these sort of concessions, whether it is procurement or long-term or short-term contracts. Because that will tell us not just about why a country is developed, but where are the problems um, in terms of all partners must, must be held accountable. Govern, gov, gov, governments, certainly central governments, but also all of these private actors that are very much part of public policy making today. So you started off in gender studies, right? How did you end up moving towards public procurement? Actually, my degree is in political science. Mm-hmm. Um, um, uh, and, and I did write my dissertation on, on uh, procurement. So um, when I actually was reviewing the literature on development, I, I, I schemed the, the past 20 years, and there was nothing on really government outsourcing in Africa at all. I wanted, I wanted to write about, about Africa. So what I ended up doing actually was to write the history of colonialism, but seen from the perspective of government outsourcing. Uh, so the, my thesis basically argues that the state, you know, as we see, France colonized Cameroon, um, England colonized Nigeria. I'm saying that statement is, is true to some extent, but uh, really what happened on the ground were this sort of public-private partnerships that dates back to the 17th century. So my, my dissertation that provided that sort of historical backdrop to saying, okay, what is happening today is actually not new. It may be uh, more attractive, it has changed, the economy has changed, the world economy has changed, but it has been there for a while. As far as gender studies uh, is concerned, I have been writing on this subject even before I went to graduate school. Um, and I think that it, it is in part because, just like you know, Martha, Martha makes the links between not just the condition she's describing as, as, as dependency or vulnerability or care, but tying it to institutions. That's the same thing that I'm trying to do here in my research. That is, uh, yes, I am concerned with uh, uh, particular groups, in this, in this case, uh, uh, women, um, LGBT, LGBT communities. And, and what is the conversation that I 
that is that is happening institutionally that has to do with public policy but also with economics but also with broader defined development so um it i don't see necessarily a split it's it is that the under the umbre- umbrella of public procurement or government outsourcing as i see how policy evolves and expand i recognize issues that are of interest to me have you seen that states are responding differently to their citizens needs as they begin outsourcing more or as i suppose they continue to outsource more okay let me um, talk about the state of gender in public procurement um in the united states Obama was the, the first president to mandate collection of data by gender to start disaggregating to even begin to understand you know what is going on in federal contracting and recently the US uh hit the 5%. Now US has the largest public procurement market in the world. That is even if you exclude military outsourcing and contracting. but the US is at 5%. Globally speaking, there has been since the 1990s some sort of revolution. And <clears throat> revolution in the sense that when the when the uh Eastern Europe basically freed itself from the Soviet Union, there was a problem for Europe that was how do we harmonize public procurement given these uh, new entry new states coming in. So There was a global conversation that started there in the early 1990s that then spread to Africa, Asia and Latin America. And what has happened in that discourse of openness uh reforming public procurement is that the the discourse on trade and competition sort of overtook was given more preeminence so that uh the the purely commercial aspect of procurement was basically what was retained as a solid ground for contracting internationally now that has changed a lot of lobbying a lot of campaign by uh, ngos and now there is an agreed upon language at this at the un the un women uh, uh, leading that 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 uh, effort to take into consideration women as entrepreneurs that is the supply side that is to say if we cannot stop government outsourcing we recognize this is a market and therefore a potential benefit for women entrepreneurs so there are those who at that point are trying to push for let's say in the case of the US move beyond the 5% uh, countries such as Kenya have adopted 30% of all national contracts must go to women or people with disability or, or, or youths however they define it countries like south africa have adopted public procurement as a constitutional mandate that is you have to take into consideration affirmative action based on race when contracting in south africa across the board i think countries are understanding that when it comes to at least the economics of public procurement it is important uh, that everybody sees it as an engine of of growth supporting small businesses owned by women minority uh, groups 
um, that is sort of uh, where people are moving towards. Now, and not a lot of debate is um, uh, on the consumer side of it. And, and my argument has been that if we want to talk about gender, if we want to talk about social justice, we have to hold both ends of the spectrum. That is, if I were just to talk about women, yes, a woman does not need to only be entrepreneurial to be, to be taken seriously in, in government outsourcing. She might be the consumer of a public good and services, and that too is as important as a supply of that good. So that's where I see the gap, that to some extent where excitement is, it is more on the business side and less so on, on the, um, the consumer side. Mm -hmm. What would you like to change and how would you like it to change? First of all, I would like more people to really be aware of the critical role that public procurement plays in empowering some groups and maybe uh, leaving some groups behind. And what excites me here is that this is not an issue of developing countries or poor countries. Let me take an example of Georgia. So last year you had a, um, a an interesting election here. And of all the talks, you may have heard a story about some voting machines involving a contractor in some sort of county. And I don't know whether it was shady deals or what, but what I heard was that there were problems with, with the machines that are being that were being used. Now, of course, Machines have problems. But the real question there is that, well, when these machines are supplied by somebody who may have some interest, uh, we have to be looking into those things. Elsewhere, um, you have issues of corruption is here. We may call it campaign contributions. Elsewhere, we call it what, by the different name. So these sort of relationships where... The private, as we used to talk about it in some sort of, in uh, progressive circles, you know, the way feminist talks about the private, talking about care, talking about, you know, family, you know, the private is public. That statement that we used to use, we, we, we talk about a certain set of relationship. Well, that, that is true today, except that that sort of private is different. <laughs> it is a commercial private that is very much public. So what I want people to, to know is really that, you know, we have to become aware that citizenship is not just something that people hold today. Corporations also, to some extent, um, given the influence that they have. And that then raises the question of who do you hold accountable? What sort of, is it, how do we imagine democracy going forward? Now, I don't want to sound as if I am against uh, the private sector, or against any government. What I'm trying to say is that uh, being aware that government, as we used to know it, is no longer the same. That has always been true to some extent, but more and more, um, the road that are built in my village um, or in your county um, are built by someone else. You know, And I have seen cases where a project, whether we're talking about uh, Hurricane Katrina in the U.S. or South Sudan elsewhere, 
projects cost just too much, you know, too much. And, and that money that is being spent goes to private pockets, you know, rather than to actually implementing uh, the kind of services that people need. So uh, this, this, is, this is important in terms of management of public resources, quality of our institutions, our own ability to continue to feel as if we have a say through our votes. So I would say follow the money, follow the money and, and understand how money works in, in politics. And a lot of it is about uh, the public-private um, relationships. Can you speak a little bit to how public procurement impacted colonialism? Yes. So in my uh, dissertation work, what I did was to analyze contracts, historical contracts, those I could get, um, I, I could get and, and read from 1620 until 1920, looking at uh, the northern, the whole region of northern Africa from the pirates uh, the northern pirates to the, the the Horn of Africa, the old Abyssinia Empire, looking at the whole west coast of Africa. So I was looking at these sort of deals that merchants will sign with African chiefs. Now, historically, the reason why people haven't paid attention to these sort of deals is that there was always this assumption that when you don't have a state, um, the entity has no legal standing to contract. So people have always sort of looked down upon these sort of deals and say, well, they were chiefs and therefore really not recognized under international law. But I was very, very surprised that you could see that there was a distinct pattern between what I would call the state qua state, meaning the, the politicians, the governors, and what they were doing in the colonies, and the merchants, because the merchants were doing the acquisitions for many, many uh, years, Africa was not penetrated. So the, the, the trade happened on the coast until about 1830, when you see um, uh, merchants begins to move inland. And 1885 is really the conference of Berlin when Africa will then be divided into what and, and, and broken up basically into different pieces that we recognize today as states. But in that process, a lot of it was already integrating what is it that companies that were doing business on the coast of Africa had already acquired. So my dissertation was looking at that sort of inter interaction and from the perspective of acquisitions of whether land or rights or navigation rights that then allowed different actors, uh, sometimes acting directly as envoys of state or indirectly as traders who may have had a monopoly, uh, charters, you know, we used to call them. Um, so that a charter is basically a monopoly to trade that a, a state will give to a company, say, okay, go to the Congo, we'll only recognize people who do business with you, something like that. Um, so looking at those and then concluding that, um, Without this sort of entente, without this sort of um, interaction um, uh, between the private and public, um, colonialism colonialism would have taken a different a different kind of um, of pattern, and 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 but in so doing, European state made themselves also vulnerable. In uh, to to private um, black people in some ways, um, if I may take. 
Cameroon, my, my own country, as an, as an example, we were not technically really formally colonized. There was a company um, that signed a treaty with um, the coastal leaders. And at that point, Bismarck was not actually interested in, in Africa per se, but this company had to kind of lobby very hard and and say, well, if you don't do anything, the French are going to come because they are they are already in, in northern Cameroon, they're coming and they might just take over. And in that way, they were able to secure some sort of help. So the bottom line is that trade is not devolved politics. You know, history, the history of Africa at least shows me that the partners in the scramble of Africa were not, were, were working together, at times blackmailing each other. But what really cemented the relationship was were, were these sort of agreements, uh, contracting that gave different agents assets, basically, to hold on uh, during the colonial time. What projects are you working on now? As a follow-up to my first book, uh, which is um, Public Procurement and, and Governance Reform in Africa, I am considering uh, working on another volume that will specifically look at the issue of gender and public procurement in, in Africa. There is no solid work in that area so far. Um, a lot of what exists is um, NGO reports, funders' reports, but on the scholarly side, there is not much really done. Yet uh, many countries are changing the laws to integrate gender, gender mainstreaming, into uh, public procurement. So I would like to, I'm considering doing another volume. What will be new is that we will then bring in vulnerability theory to try to tease out uh, what are the new and old vulnerabilities that we see in terms of the state as it, in Africa as it outsources, in terms of uh, specific categories, women, as they are consuming services, using ser- services, or as they are struggling to become part of the the economic opportunity as as entrepreneurs. So those are the dynamics that I would like to to capture. And what sort of statistics would you be looking at? So this would be um, what I what I would like to do is another perhaps edited volume where we'll be looking at um, case studies. The African Development Bank actually publishes good statistics in terms of what they fund, and it is a continental bank. Uh, a number of countries are now publishing at least the percentage of contracts that are going to women and the amount. So you can actually see, okay, women entrepreneurs, let's say in in Kenya, got perhaps 20%, but how much? Because the other issue is, well, are they supplying paper toilets to the government versus construction by sectors? Are Are there areas where they are actually not represented at all? Uh, and, and, and are there other areas that are they, they are where they are um, overrepresented? And is is government just saying, well, we hooray, this is a new boss in town, we want more women, or they actually being conscious in terms of, well, we want to empower, let's say, more women engineers to be able to bid and win, you know, construction contracts. Now we're talking. So so those are the sort of substantive questions beyond um, policy on paper, which is which is a good start. So. That's my, my hope to tease out a little bit what are, what are the trends 
in terms of policy reform, what is the practical experience on the ground, um, um, and what are the gaps. Sounds like an exciting project to go into. I think so. What else would you like listeners to remember from this interview today? I would like listeners to remember um, that when we're talking about vulnerability, we're talking about a spectrum of human experiences. That's number one. And therefore, we, as we think about what does it mean in terms of the institutions that govern us, we should be also thinking about a spectrum of, of institutions and institutional interactions. The area of public-private partnership is, is not very well understood, yet it plays a significant role, whether in our elections, whether in, in distributing business opportunities to some groups and, and not others, whether in determining which services, which areas gets funding or not, or, or international development. So this is really important. So uh, as we're talking about the state, let us also perhaps pay a little bit more attention to the contractors outsourcing scheme that are part of state activities, but sometimes are, are treated as as something very much alien, you know, or, or, or passing. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. This has been an episode of Voices and Vulnerability. Expect a new episode every month. If you like what you heard here, you can find us on Twitter at VHC Initiative and on Facebook at Vulnerability and the Human Condition. Thanks for tuning in.